Jesus told this parable to certain people who had convinced themselves that they were righteous and who looked on everyone else with disgust. Two people went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed about himself with these words. God, I thank you that I'm not like anyone else, everyone else. Crooks, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I receive. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even lift his eyes to look toward heaven. Rather, he struck his chest and said, God, show mercy to me, a sinner. I tell you, this person went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Hey, Oak Folk. <laughs> um, before I kind of dive in, I do want to acknowledge that um, we've all just heard some really difficult news, really heavy news. Um, so I would encourage you to take what you need in this time. Um, if you can't pay attention, please don't feel any pressure to. Um, if you need to step outside and get some fresh air, please feel free. If you want to go give your kids a hug, please um, care for yourself uh, in this time. So uh, in godly play, when we tell a parable story, there's somewhat of a script that we follow at the beginning of each story to orient the kids towards what a parable is. The parable stories are packaged in these little gold boxes, and so we say things like, uh, this box is gold because parables are very special. Uh, we remind the kids that just like the lid on the box, we have to open up the parables to find the meaning, meaning hidden inside the story. And sometimes this meaning isn't immediately clear. And other times, what seems like the meaning of the parable at first glance isn't actually the meaning at all, or it isn't the full meaning. So I don't know if you've seen the like real or cake trend that's made the rounds on social media. Um, so for example, sometimes there will be this video of like a table full of apples and a knife will come into the screen and cut one of the apples and surprise it was cake the whole time. Today's parable reminds me of this real or cake trend in some ways. At first glance, uh, the parable seems self-interpreting. The message of the parable is tied up with this neat little bow at the end in the statement, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. So we could stop here, and we could say that obviously this parable is a quick little lesson about the virtue of humility, and about not judging oneself based on societal standards, but on the standards of heaven. And this is a great message, but I think that if we stopped here, we'd be missing some of the point of the parable. I think that, like most parables, 
this parable is way too big to fit in the boxes that we make for it. I think that if we take the time to slow down and look a little deeper, we find a story about power and privilege and what it means to be citizens in the kingdom of God. Our parable opens in the center of power in Jerusalem, the temple. In this parable, the setting sends a message before any character speaks a word. The temple isn't only a place of prayer, it's also, as Joel Green describes, the place in Jewish society where the world is ordered through its layout of courts that segregate Jews and Gentiles, men and women, priests and non-priests, clean and unclean. And thus the temple is the divinely legitimated hub that mirrors as well as communicates and sustains the boundaries of social relations and experiences of kinship among the Jewish people. So in other words, while the temple is a sacred religious space, it's also a deeply social place, one that communicates distinctions and power and privilege by its very architecture. This parable tells the story of two men who enjoyed power and privilege for very different reasons. The Pharisee would have been someone who, in Jesus' day, enjoyed political, religious, and social favor. Pharisees reinforced the social order in Jewish society, and through trying to go above and beyond in their enforcement of religious law, placed themselves atop moral and religious hierarchies. The tax collector, on the other hand, enjoyed power and privilege from the ill-gotten financial gains of being a tool of the Roman Empire. See, unlike contemporary tax collectors who are simply government administrators who are likely incredibly underpaid like lots of other government administrative employees, tax collectors in Jesus' day use their pre-existing wealth to bid on the right to collect taxes from a region. So these contracts were widely sought after because the tax collector would often multiply their initial investment by artificially inflating the amount of tax owed to citizens. So let's say you owed $10 in taxes, the tax collector would come and take 15 from you and send 10 to Rome and keep five for themselves. So kind of almost literally stealing money from his neighbors to enrich himself. They, took, they inflated their own wealth by taking advantage of their fellow countrymen. They enjoyed incredible wealth by maximizing their own personal profits at the expense of those less fortunate. And as readers of, gospel, of Luke's gospel who are aware of Jesus' prior interactions with both of these groups, we might accurately predict that somehow the Pharisee, who is representative, representative of a group of religious leaders who often have an antagonistic relationship with Jesus in the gospel, that this Pharisee will end up being in the wrong, while the tax collector, representative of a group often lumped together with the sinners gathered around Jesus' table, will be the protagonist of the parable. Although this assumption is correct, uh, ancient hearers of this parable would have heard Jesus telling a story seemingly about righteousness, and they would expect the Pharisee, this religious leader, to be the good guy. So 
So if we don't automatically judge the Pharisee of this parable according to the actions of all the other Pharisees in Luke's gospel, we might reach a similar conclusion. If all we have to work with is what we're told in the story, this Pharisee actually sounds like a pretty good guy. He doesn't steal. He's not an evildoer. He doesn't cheat on his wife. He fasts twice a week, and he's faithful uh, in tithing on everything he earns. The tax collector, on the other hand, so often lumped in with sinners, would have been a representation of greed to the extreme, of wealth gained not from his own work, but from the work of others. In fact, because there were taxes levied against the temple in Jesus' day, the tax collector may well have been at the temple on that day to collect the tax and his own personal cut, to kind of skim off the offering plate, if you will. In his commentary on the parable, Robert Farrar Capon says that if this parable were to take place in a church today, it would likely be pretty easy for us to decide who we'd be the most comfortable with sticking around as part of our community. However, in this parable, as in the parable of the persistent widow from last week, we're given an anti-hero in the tax collector, someone who is utterly unjust and unrighteous to teach us about God's upside-down kingdom. The stark differences between our two characters come into clearer view as we overhear their prayers in the temple. The Pharisee, standing by himself, again, distanced from those unlike him, begins to thank God for his own righteousness, that God didn't make him like other people, and especially that he wasn't like this tax collector. Joel Green notes that the Pharisee's prayer in this parable follows a literary form of a thanksgiving psalm in which the psalmist typically will thank God for their favorable position in life and attribute their success in life to God's power or God's faithfulness. A great example of this pattern in the Thanksgiving Psalms is found in Psalm 92, which says in part, You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. And while the psalmist who penned the Thanksgiving Psalms attributed their success and high station to the actions of God, the Pharisee in today's parable credits his success and favorable position in life to his own righteousness. To the Pharisee, God's part in his success was limited to the giving of the law. To the Pharisee, it's his own strict keeping of the law, even going above and beyond what the law asks for, that has guaranteed his righteousness. And with that righteousness that he works so hard to gain, he's earned for himself a position of power and privilege. So he'll continue to perform that righteousness to protect his power and privilege and maybe even gain some more power and privilege for himself along the way. He's justified in the eyes of society for doing so, but we learn in this parable that he was not justified in the eyes of God. The tax collector, on the other hand, stands far off. We're told that he doesn't even feel worthy to lift his eyes to heaven when he prays. His prayer follows no formula or pattern, but is a raw emotional plea to God. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
much to the surprise of the original hearers of this parable, this man is the one who walks away justified in the eyes of God. Our anti-hero has done nothing in this parable but show up and pray a single prayer of contrition. One sentence. There's not a follow-up of repentance like in the story of Zacchaeus. No promise to repay what had been stolen from his neighbors. Just a one-sentence prayer with a request and a confession. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'd like to imagine that this parable was followed by the tax collector having a renewed vision for what it means to be a good neighbor and committing to stop his thieving ways and that he stopped collecting taxes and paid back what he was owed, just like Zacchaeus. But that would make this a parable about repentance, and it's not. It's a parable about power and privilege and how we use it. All that we know about the tax collector at the end of this paragraph is that he leaves the temple as the hero of the story, justified in the eyes of God. So what does all this mean for our understanding of this parable? Well, it might be helpful to remember that the literary audience of this parable, while not explicitly stated, is likely Jesus' disciples. They were the audience of the parable right before this, and there's no indication of like a change in scenery or a change in audience. Um, But it is likely that Jesus was talking to his followers, and in particular, um, these ones who stood to be the first inheritors of his kingdom. Specifically, he was talking to some among his followers who were confident of their own righteousness, and they looked down on everyone else, or as uh, our translation said this morning, they looked with disgust on everyone else. Jesus wasn't trying to instruct them to be humble, to beware of some hidden sin that they hadn't confessed yet. No, he was trying to instruct them about how power and privilege would work in his kingdom. They, like the Pharisee, were prone to use their power and privilege to get more for themselves and exclude others in the name of righteousness. Like the Pharisee, they viewed their power and privilege not as an opportunity to serve, but as a means by which they could be protected from the sinners of the world like this tax collector. For them, their self-righteousness was justified because it kept them safe, kept the world out. Such a, power, such a view of power and privilege leads only to more extravagant temples for ourselves, taller walls, stronger gates to keep the good ones in and the bad ones out. The view of power that Jesus condemns in this parable is one in which our self-concern blinds us to the plight of those around us and kills our imagine, imagination for seeing the resurrection at work in the world. This is why the tax collector went home justified and the Pharisee did not. The tax collector was in desperate need of new life. The Pharisees wanted nothing more than to protect the life that he had already built for himself. The tax collector could not even look to heaven as he made his plea for resurrection, and the Pharisee proudly lifted his head and basically said, thanks God, I've got it from here. Through this parable, Jesus was telling his followers who would take over after his ascension that any view of power that drew the borders of the kingdom of God smaller and smaller would simply not do. 
And just as he was inviting his followers then to lay down their power and privilege so that they could open, be open to opportunities for a resurrection all around them, Jesus is calling us to participate in his upside-down kingdom in the same way. To use our power not to gather more for ourselves and our own futures, but to make more room at this table, the table of the kingdom of God where futures are reimagined through the power of the resurrection. Uh, I'd like to offer a closing prayer from this prayer book by Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament professor. Um, He's retired now, but he probably one of the most prolific Old Testament writers of the 20th century. Um, He was also a pastor and often uh, would write prayers in the form of poems uh, that he would compile into books like this. So this prayer is called Ourselves at the Center, and this is based on Brueggemann's reading of 2 Samuel 7, but I think that it fits with this parable today. So would you pray this prayer with me? We are your people, mostly privileged, competent, entitled, your people who make futures for ourselves seize opportunities to get the job done and move on. In our self-confidence, we expect little beyond our productivity. We wait little for that which lies beyond us and then settle with ourselves at the center. And you, you in the midst of our privilege, our competence, our entitlement, you utter large, deep, oaths beyond our imagined futures. You say, fear not, I am with you. You say, nothing shall separate us. You say something of a new heaven and a new earth. You say, you are mine, I have called you by my name. You say, my faithfulness will show concretely and will abide. And we find our privilege eroded by your purpose, our competence shaken by your future, our entitlement unsettled by your other children. Give us grace to hear your promises. Give us freedom to trust your promises. Give us patience to wait and humility to yield our dreamed future to your larger purpose. We pray in the name of Jesus, who is your deep yes over our lives. Amen.